0: Hello and welcome again to the Shiloh podcast. This is the podcast that explores rape culture, religion and the Bible. And today, my guest is... Um, I'm Eve Parker,
1: I'm currently the postdoctoral research associate in theological education at Durham University. Um, My research at Durham has been focusing on diversity and inclusion in theological education. I've been looking at the barriers to belonging for those who are studying for ordination and lay ministries with a particular focus on gender, sexuality, ethnicity and class.
0: You had a book out this year, It's a, it comes from your field work in South India and I was really interested in that because I lived and worked in South India for a while, um, rather a long time ago. Um, your book is subtitled, we'll come to the main title in a minute, but it's subtitled Towards an Indecent Dalit Theology and I wonder if you can just explain why indecent? As you said, the book is entitled
1: Towards an Indecent Theology. The full title is Theologizing with the Sacred Prostitutes of South India Towards an Indecent Dalit Theology. Before I go into why indecent, if it's okay, let me just briefly explain what this term Dalit means. The Dalits are those who have otherwise been referred to as untouchables and outcasts in the context of the Hindu caste system in India. And the word Dalit is a term of resistance for those who have been left out of the caste system. It literally translates as broken. And it's Dalit women who are the focus of this book, more specifically Dalit sacred sex workers. And these are women who are also known as Devadasis.
0: Just tell me a little bit about how it was that you came to be sitting in India talking to um, sacred sex workers for your book. So
1: when I first came across the ritual practice of the Devadasi system, um, it was when I was working for an organisation called the Council for World Mission. And I was responsible for coordinating a programme that was held in Tamil Nadu Theological Seminary. And the programme focused on Dalit justice issues and it was working with Dalit activists and Dalit theologians, and met at the time a woman called Asha Kautel, and she led the Dalit women's rights movements. And it was actually her who taught me more about what was happening with the Devadasis, and she spoke on the plight of Dalit women um, and how they experienced they were persecuted for for their gender, their caste, and their class. And actually, when we were there, the very next day, we found out that a sixteen-year-old Dalit Devadasi had been brutally raped and murdered by the men in her village in Andhra Pradesh for refusing the advances of a higher caste man. And I decided that the the, the plight of Dalit women must be at the centre of a Dalit theology of liberation. We can't just speak on Dalit theology without immersing ourselves into the context. And so I decided there and then that I was going to do a PhD and I wanted to focus on the Devadasi women's narratives because they were deemed the most marginalised of the marginalised
0: So you say the Devadasi are sacred sex workers. Can you explain a little bit more about their position?
1: The contemporary Devadasis are Dalit women, who, as young girls, are dedicated to village goddesses. And this is most commonly as a result of poverty, illness, caste, hereditary obligation. And these these are women who, there's a term, there's a phrase that's used, that's become known as servants of God, but wives of the whole town. And this is because they are married in these religious ceremonies to goddesses, and the goddesses' names are Mathama or Yelama. And usually when the girl is sick or in extreme poverty, they'll get married to these goddesses in order to spend the rest of their lives as Devadasis. Now, this term Devadasi translates as deva, which means God, and dasi, which means female slave. And when the girl is married to the goddess, there's a ceremony that takes place, and it's um, a traditional like marriage ceremony, as it were. And a necklace is tied around the dedicated child's neck, and it's important to recognise that these are children, children being dedicated. Um, and then at the age of around twelve years old, what happens is there's this deflowering ceremony, is called, that takes place when. in this is a this is. Uh, process by which a high caste man in the village will pay the guardians of that child for the child's virginity and following this other men of the village will then pay for sex and these men belong to different caste groups so devadasis in their contemporary form are are really the marginalized of the marginalized and you might think then that as a result of this marginalized status the devadasis perhaps would resent the goddess for example that they're dedicated to but in fact, the vast majority of the women who I worked with, who I interviewed, were committed to their worship of the goddess because they firmly believed that the goddess was the only one who understood their pain and suffering.
0: So um, today's Devadasi are likely, as you say, if, if, they're, if they're ill or if their are family in poverty, then they are taken to the temple and sold to the temple to, to be married to the goddess. Um, what about the origins of the practice? So... Traditionally, the devadasis were considered
1: to be ritual specialists. They were dedicated to temple deities in marriage. And what they did was they embodied this spiritual marriage with the divine. And traditionally this was expressed in temple dancing, daily rituals, singing, dancing. So not this concept as it is today of sacred prostitution. And the origin of this Devadasi phenomenon has also been the subject of debate. But many anthropologists suggest that it can be traced back as far as the Indus Valley civilization. So this lasted between 3300 BCE to 1300 BCE. And others maintain that the origins of the tradition can be found in Vedic literature. But what we do know is that traditionally the power of the Devadasis was considered this effective ritual practice, and she was appreciated for her arts, not in the same way she is today.
0: And was there a sense in which she the um, she was a sort of bridge between the goddess and the worshipper? Absolutely, right. So she would she would um, bring benefits to the worshippers through her through her dancing, through her service of the goddess.
1: Exactly that. She was considered auspicious. She was considered to be the destructor of sin because of her relationship to the goddess. She was, in a sense, seen as a divine incarnation of the goddess. Um, So, as you can see, her her role within the temple worship shifted significantly.
0: So, 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 was she always a Dalit or was she sometimes a higher status Hindu back in the day?
1: Both, um, but more commonly, not Dalit she was more commonly traditionally, she would have been of a higher caste. And it wasn't until, well, many scholars assume that it was as a result of colonial rule that her status changed significantly. Um, And this is when more Dalits began dedicated and it became in response to poverty as opposed to temple worship in the same way in which it was traditionally perceived.
0: So a Devadasi, who was a maybe even a high caste Hindu, becomes a despised and marginalised Dalit sex worker in in a temple. How how did that happen? What was the role of colonialism in that?
1: Okay, the change in status of the Devadasis was in part due to British imperialism of the 16th century because they forced about this socio-political and religious shift on the Devadasis. You had the Christian missionary model of morality that had obviously a detrimental effect on the way in which society came to regard the dedicated women. And the subject of gender and sexual control was actually a major factor in the independence debates of the 19th century. You had the outlawing of Sati um, in 1829. You had child marriage and female education and the stigmatization of widows were all brought to an end by certain reform movements that the British brought in, which is, which was great in many ways. But these these realities didn't actually impact the lower castes and the Dalits. And you still behind the scenes here had this Devadasi practice going on. And so the the campaign against British imperialism became interwoven with women's reform movements to the extent that the British used the so-called modernization of the place and role of women within Indian society as a means of demonstrating their own moral agenda. And yet at the same time you have to remember that the British Army actually increased the demand for prostitution. As a means of fulfilling the sexual needs of the military so you had this strange role that women were playing and what it did was it created these dichotomous roles of women so you had you know the virgin whore imagery and naturally the higher castes flocked towards the virgin imagery they were permitted they were deemed as holding this esteemed place whereas the dalits they were seen as the unclean women and so what happened then was that the Dalits were the ones that became dedicated to the Devadasi system because they were seen as being unclean, because the practice itself was seen unclean in the eyes of the British. And in 1947, a law was passed that criminalized the Devadasi system. And this was part of the modernizing process, as it were, of Mother India. And this process was shaped by the politics of morality, the shame and stigmatization of women's bodies. And what this did was it led to transformed perceptions of the Devadasi system. It began to be deemed as very immoral, even within Hindu communities. It was seen as impure and improper religious profanity. And then it was seen as a byproduct, as it were, of Dalit religiosity, no longer even seen as Hindu religion. What did that do um, to the status of the goddess? It was a really interesting question because it shifted her role. So now you've got a point where the Devadasi system has changed and the goddess to whom they're dedicated to, Yalama or Mathama, their roles within the communities changed. They became or become the, the goddesses of the Dalits, worshipped on the margins of the community. So they become the Dalit goddess. And um, this is what happens again with the, with the Christian God, with Jesus. He becomes the God of the Dalits too. So you have this shift so in order to be the god of the Dalits, you have to be displaced from the mainstream religion. as it were. You have to be the god of the margins, the god of the fringes. And this is where she becomes relevant, actually, to the Dalit women's experience, because you've got a goddess who's seen also as impure and immodest, and the worship changes,
0: as does the goddess. But the Devadasi system um, persists. So, um, I mean, how is it rationalised among caste Hindus these days if if the if the Devadasi themselves are unclean Dalits? This is the hypocrisy of the Hindu caste
1: system. You have a system of untouchability where women are, Dalit women are exceptionally touchable when it conveniences. And so the system is obviously flawed and the the gods, the practice is, it's not talked about in mainstream media. And this is why it's so dangerous because we know it's happening, it's happening on a mass scale, but it's being criminalised. And by criminalising the system, you push it to the margins and we're unable for the exploitation of women to happen, particularly Dalit women.
0: So how has Dalit theology addressed this?
1: Well, in many ways, it hasn't. Um, Dalit Christian theology, despite
0: being very much
1: shaped by the pain pathos of the Dalits, has not engaged with the Devadasis, or for that matter, Dalit sex workers at all. And this is important because Dalit theology evolves through these this dialoguing with Dalit communities. It's fundamentally about resistance and liberation for the Dalit people. Um, And so Dalit theology, as we know, is a a, a theology of liberation. It's about the premise that a non-Dalit God cannot be the God of the Dalits. And it's for this reason that the Dalitness of Jesus is so important. As in Dalit Christian theology, Jesus is Dalit and his ultimate Dalitness is realized on the cross. And so this is important when it comes to looking at the Devadasi experience, because through a Dalit Christian lens, it involves relocating God into these uncomfortable,
0: indecent spaces and why hasn't Dal- why hasn't dalit theology addressed this because
1: dalit theology in my opinion is guilty of being too morally pure if that makes sense it's guilty of um ignoring like most liberation theologies including a lot of feminist theologies the the bodies, the narratives that come from the bodies of the so-called indecent, so that come from the sex workers, that come from the shamed, that come from those who have been persecuted. We're, there's a, there's a reason why queer voices uh, are missing so much from liberation theologies, and and these are the voices that actually have the most important bodily narratives to tell, particularly within the theologies of liberation, well, all theology for that matter, and um, and so that's that's why they're missing. They're, 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 it's the same with all theologies of liberation. That's what Marcella Outhouse reed calls out so well in her work, the fact that they are we are guilty of silencing indecent bodies that might actually highlight our own guilt in
0: the systems of patriarchy that exist. She writes about the terrible fate of theologies from the margins when they want to be accepted by the centre. Absolutely. And, and feminist theology too. I mean, um, where have feminists been within Dalit liberation theology?
1: So... Dalit theology, like many liberation theologies, is guilty of being quite patriarchal. However, Domin- Dalit womanist theology stands out as, as this, this hope within the midst. Dalit womanist perspectives challenge Dalit theological discourse and Dalit movements as a whole. It calls out What it does is it calls on male theologians to address caste, yes, but also alongside patriarchy. And what it does is it does it's very much based in scripture, rereadings of scripture in order to make the text relevant to the lives of the Dalit women and enable the Bible to speak to the experiences of Dalit women. So more so I think than um, Dalit male Christian theology, Dalit womanist takes scripture very seriously because the Bible plays this central role um, in Dalit womanist interpretations. And what they do is, okay, so there's, there's, there's this woman called Monica Melanchthon who is an outstanding Dalit womanist theologian and she allows the life situations of Dalit women and their stories to be in active conversations with the biblical texts and what this does is it makes relevant the text the biblical text to the Dalit experience and she does this as a means of liberation for the Dalit women so she gives a voice to the silent women in scripture whilst giving a voice to the women outside of scripture who have also been silenced who are obviously most commonly
0: Dalit women. Which the biblical texts which particularly speak to the experience of Dalit women, do you think? So
1: when I read certain biblical passages with Devadasis and we looked at Luke 7, 36 to 38, and this is the story of the woman known for being sinful who walks in unannounced, uninvited to the house of Simon, one of the Pharisees. And when we read this story, it actually became a story of resistance. This is a silenced woman who puts her broken body at the feet of Christ. And in doing so, this rereading challenges the dominant structures of society with her bodily actions. We also looked at the book of Revelation. Parts of this didn't actually make it into the final book. Um, But it was interesting because we looked at the violence against the whore of Babylon, as well as the control and subjugation of the bride in Revelation 13. And this was very much comparable to the way in which high caste and Dalit women have been depicted and controlled. And we also looked at Ezekiel twenty three, the story of Ahola and Taliba, which is a story that resonated, perhaps the most, with the Dalit
0: Devadasi experience. Let's just um, look at that one a bit. Ahola uh, um, and Ho- Aholiba. And yes. They they're two sisters, yes. and. Uh, they're metaphors for Samaria and Jerusalem, um, and they're punished by God because, difficult to know how to describe this rightly, but um, they prostituted themselves from childhood onwards, and particularly, it would seem, um, with powerful foreign invaders. When when you read that with Devadasi women, what did, they, what did they say about that?
1: This was the most troublesome text by far that we read, because when... Dalit women read the Bible, the idea is that you're constructing new texts that play a significant role in the Dalit struggle for identity, power and resistance against caste violence. But with this particular text, it resonated so much with the Devadasi experience that it was was troublesome. Um, And so, in fact, to the extent that we weren't able to directly read most of it, because it would have just been reliving so much abuse. So, what I do in the book is look at the ways in which the narratives of the Devadasis relate so directly with the narratives of that of Ahola and Haliba. Because the women within the narrative are depicted as whores, whores who are violently degraded, they're raped and they're tortured. And we hear in the text that this abuse is being divinely justified because the prophet Ezekiel presents this as a text that's coming directly from Yahweh. Um. And again, if you think about the Devadasi experience, it's the idea that their punishment is divinely justified. They're dedicated, like, the, like these twin sisters, to the goddess in marriage. And then we hear about them coming from one mother and no reference is made to a father. And again, you know, the de- for the Devadasis, their father plays no part in their lives. They continue the lineage of the Devadasi system and they're not to be free from it. And also, like the the the, this, the twin sisters, they're labeled as whores from childhood. They have no, no role. They have no voice. They have no. They're silenced throughout. They were told that they belong to the goddess, and their bodies are depicted as being in need of controlling. And in Ezekiel twenty three, it's very much the same. You've got two oppressed women, who are in need of controlling. They're called temptresses, and they're told to that they will be punished for their sins, sins that they never chose because it's in hot childhood that this occurred. So did you read this text
0: with Dalit women?
1: So some of the texts were reread as a means of producing an indecent Dalit theology directly with the Devadasis. So, for example, the story of Luke, this, the woman um was that was very much a text of resistance and the insights that were offered through the re-readings with the devadasis were amazing because they became these narratives of of true resistance it was woman walking up to the feet of christ her tears falling onto the feet of christ and this was obviously traditionally when we've read this this is meant to be a sign that she's embarrassed she's ashamed of the sins that she's committed whereas For the Devadasi this was she's crying because of the sins that society has committed against her. She's not asking for her forgiveness, she's asking for the forgiveness of society because they have been so brutal to her.
0: So that's a text, a really powerful text, which can be read in a sort of restorative way uh, by um, Dalit women and by Devadasi. But the the text such as um, Ezekiel, you can't. So what do you do with that? That exactly what I've done. I I
1: chose not to read that text with the Devadasi community, having witnessed the processes of that the Devadasis went through, the similarities between the ceremonies, the relationship between the goddess and everything else. I thought it would be too too close, too too similar. Too it it would be it would require a trigger warning that wouldn't translate and so it would be too toxic a thing to do and that's why that particular text wasn't read directly because i didn't and that, that doesn't stop a text like ezekiel though becoming a text of resistance um, and, that, and that and this is also important because one because of the methodology of speaking to silenced bodies particularly tortured silenced bodies What this text does, re-reading it through the physically lived experiences of the Devadasi, it brings to light these systems of oppression. So when we read the Bible, we're often thought, well, you know, these things like the story of um, in Judges 19 of the concubine who's thrown on top of the back of a donkey. These things wouldn't happen now, but we know that they do. And so if we're giving voice to these systems of oppression, this violence against women, by re-reading the text in light of what's actually happening day to day, then it, it's a form of protest, it's a form of solidarity because we're saying actually to your nameless body, to your silenced body, we can add these names and we need to do something about it. This isn't simply a biblical text where Ezekiel using metaphorical language to justify divine acts from Yahweh. This is violent acts committed against the bodies of women that happen on a daily basis and people are saying a divinely justified. What are we going to do? So it calls for action by rereading the text. Yeah, it's way. really
0: powerful. So, so, so you read Ezekiel with Dalit women, but not with Devadasi. What did, what did they make of the biblical presentation of God as the perpetrator of such violence?
1: That's an interesting question because for some,
0: the, the God of the Hebrew
1: Bible is very difficult to understand. He becomes more like a Brahminical God, as it were, because he's seen as this high-up figure. And so it's, very, it's a lot harder to resonate with or relate to, the, the the God of the Old Testament, the God that Ezekiel portrays. And that's why God as Christ is so much more central to Dalit womanist and Dalit, theolo- Dalit theology as a whole, because you have here the broken
0: God of the cross. So so you've got this um terrible um, god as portrayed in Ezekiel. Um is there a model of god in the Hebrew scriptures which is a, a, is positively and can be positively embraced by the Dalit community?
1: Very much so. You've got the god of liberation that's present with the people um in exile and this is a central theme throughout Dalit theology. Very much uh, very similar to, in black theology, the idea that um, when our people are in exile, they will find freedom and they will find liberation. And this narrative of exile that runs throughout the Old Old Testament is central to Dalit theology because there has to be this hope that freedom will come and that God is on the side of those who seek freedom. God is on the side of the oppressed and the enslaved
0: just ask you about the experience of Dalit and Devadasi women their religious experience I mean you talk in the book about how Christ might be a deity among other deities in the temple or how Christian women may nevertheless hang on to the goddess Mathama what sort of challenge does that present to the church in India?
1: So the goddess cannot be ignored in Dalit theology in many ways because in Dalit theology in the Dalit context, the goddess is central. You have to remember that the goddess in the local village offers a means by which we can better understand Christian Dalit theology as well, because it's not so much about whether or not the church accepts religious hybridity. Because to the Dalit Christians in the village who I met, they worship Christ alongside the goddess. The church's acceptance is somewhat irrelevant because it's lived Christianity. In the context of the south indian village because and and the god goddess's role just like jesus's role becomes one in which um the deities the divine responds to the needs of the people in the given time and place so it's a goddess that or god that responds to poverty and resistance and if the goddess offers a certain means of escape then christ will offer a different means of escape and it's it's what we can learn then from the goddess theology and christian theologies that i found most fascinating where the goddess is worshipped in the temples that are mostly on the margins of the village and where the goddess takes on the form of an impure deity as they are often associated with blood death leftover food which all oppose brahminical laws of purity and this is then how jesus is perceived as this unclean god of the dalits and the margins and we also then see these themes subtly appearing within dalit theology but there's a certain stigma that comes from the church that's attached to goddess worship so it's a very very confusing relationship as it were where the goddess is often silent as a
0: result. so in a sense when you say we move you know, the, when you talk about moving towards and creating an indecent dalit theology it's part of the indecency from a um I said, a, a purist Christian perspective, um, The I'm putting it in inverted comments, the contamination of Christianity by goddess worship, is that is that part of the indecency?
1: Absolutely, yes. Um, that's a perfect way of describing it. What the goddess can do to Christian theology as we know it in, in, in the West is is polluted in the most indecent of ways because she presents us with this religious hybridity, doesn't she? She presents us with this live religiosity from the Dalek community where they believe in both God, the God as Jesus, but also the God as the goddess. And this confuses how we systematically have come to know about the monotheistic God, uh, which is not by accident, the God, the white God of Christianity, this, the, the God that what you might say is also the Brahminical God, the God that says you have to only believe in me and no other God. And that to us, those of us in the West, is a huge challenge. But the indecent aspect of this is very much that, well, whether you like it or not, this is how Christianity is lived in context. This is how the Dervadasis who have experienced the brutal wrath of the, the Brahminical God in their mind responds to the daily needs of their oppression and so it's, very, it's it's fluid and indecent theology is in itself fluid because it's lived it comes out of the bodies of the oppressed it's a theology of bodies um, and indecent theology does not shy away from looking at Christ
0: through this lens That's all really fascinating Eve thank you ever so much um, for your time and and your patience in sort of trying to uh communicate this in a a way that we can really understand um what what you're doing we've done quite a lot of retakes listener you might not be surprised to know Um, thank you everybody for listening to the shiloh podcast please subscribe to it at the shiloh podcast or one word dot captivate dot fm or from wherever you get your podcasts and view the shiloh project blog for more news and views follow us on twitter at project shiloh bye for now